Thank you guys, that was generous. I appreciated that. <clears throat> Often when I'm at home with my wife, Annie, we'll be talking and she'll say to me, Simon, you don't have to shout at me, I'm right next to you. So if my mic fails this morning, we should be okay. We should be okay. Well, have you ever found yourself in the same room as someone famous, but not realised it straight away? And then later on, it's dawned on you just who they were. Has that ever happened to you? I can think of a time about two or three years ago uh, when I was living in Streatham, and I was in uh, one of the local pubs with my friend Ben, and we are having some food, having a pint, and there was a, a couple of guys sitting at a table uh, just a few yards away from us, and there was one guy sitting there, and I looked at him, and I thought, I've seen, I've seen this guy's face before somewhere. I don't know him, but I've seen him, but I, just, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. You know, one of those moments. And then I went to the bar later, ordered some food, and he was standing right next to me, and I was kind of staring at him a little bit, but thinking, I'm sure I've seen this guy from somewhere, but I just couldn't remember. Anyway, right at the end of the evening, I suddenly realised it dawned on me, I've seen him on TV somewhere. I've seen him on TV, he was a, he was a television and film actor. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen the film Blood Diamond, he was the bad guy in Blood Diamond. And he was also in Homeland. Have any of you guys watch Homeland? He was the deputy... CIA director called David Estes, if that means anything to you. There's a picture of him there. So he's not like the world's most famous actor or anything, but he has been on TV. Uh, his name's David Harewood. And so I realised at the end of the evening who he was. And the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today is from John's Gospel. And it's all about Jesus. Now, John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. So he spent three years with Jesus and he got to know him really well. And he watched him say and do amazing things. He was a close friend of Jesus. But it took John quite a while to realise just who Jesus was. Well, we're in our Closer Christmas series, and we're thinking about the true message of Christmas. And this morning I'm going to be following on from Malcolm's message last week. Malcolm was talking about the idea of separation last week, uh, that we're, we're here and God's here, and unfortunately we're separated from him because of our sin. And there's nothing that we can do to bridge the gap. There's nothing that we can do to get back to God. And we need God to step in. And this morning we're going to be finding out how God stepped in. So if you have a Bible with you, please do look up John's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, the words will all appear on the screen. Okay, let me read this text for us then. I'm going to read it quite, quite quickly, because there's quite a few verses to get through. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It's on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. That's a fantastic passage, isn't it, this morning? A fantastic passage of Scripture. It's packed full of rich truth. I hope you're excited about getting stuck into this this morning, about God's, God's speaking to us through his living word. Now, I've been looking at this text this week, and what I'd like to do is draw out three main points. And the first point I have called a divine identity. A divine identity. Well, as we read the first line, in the beginning was the word. The first question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the word? Who or, or what is the word? And it's an important question, particularly given what, what it then says about the word in the, in the following verses. And we can see straight away in verse 2, actually, it's talking about a person. It says, he was with God in the beginning. And having read through the passage, we see later on that, Jesus, that John must be referring to Jesus. Because in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. So we can know straight away that John is referring to the word here as being Jesus. And the commentators say uh, that in Hebrew thought, the term the word was thought to mean expression for God. So that's, again, helpful for us as we look at the text together. So, if we know that John is referring to Jesus in these three verses as being the word, then we could effectively translate the first couple of verses like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, if you've ever read the very beginning of the Bible, you realise that the first three words at the beginning of our text this morning are the same as the first three words at the beginning of the Bible, at the beginning of Genesis. It says, in the beginning. And what follows, if you've read that part of the Bible, is a creation account. It starts with an uncreated God. In other words, a God that has not been created, that has eternally existed. A God who then speaks life into being. He speaks life into creation. And what John wants to do here immediately is basically take us back to the Genesis account and say, guys, you know at the beginning of time when God created the world? Well, guess what? Jesus was there. Jesus was there. He was with God. He was God. And he did it. Jesus created the world. Now, that may seem a little bit confusing. Because if you look at the word, you say, well, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. How can, how can that be? And that's a good question to ask. Well, actually, what we have here in these opening two verses is a reference to two of the distinct members of the Trinity. So, although it doesn't say explicitly, it's a reference to God the Father and God the Son. And they're working together in creation. In fact, if you read the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of Genesis, there's also a reference to the Holy Spirit working in, in creation. So what we can say, actually, is that we know all the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are working together at creation, involved. So thinking back to the passage then, what John overwhelmingly wants us to see in these opening verses is that Jesus Christ is God himself. He has a divine identity. One of my favourite films is the film Rocky. I love all the Rocky films, but the first one's brilliant. Any, any, any guys? I know Joe's a Rocky fan. I know Joe's a Rocky fan. Seems like it's just you and me, Joe. But I love those films. I don't know if you know this, but Sylvester Stallone actually wrote the script for Rocky. Yeah? He's smarter than he looks. Now, he wrote the script for Rocky. And so, although he's the main character, he actually, he's actually the author of the story as well. Now, the scriptwriter is the creator, isn't he or she? He's the one who does the creating. He's the one who plans and writes the story. He's the one who creates the characters and brings the characters to life. 
And if the whole of the Bible story was put into a film, then like sliced alone in Rocky, Jesus would be the scriptwriter. He'd be the author of the story, as well, of course, as the main character. Because Jesus exists, John is saying, before the story starts. He writes the story himself. He creates all the characters. And he, of course, is the main character around which the whole story revolves. In the next few verses of our passage, John goes on to make more statements about Jesus. And he has this specific intention every time of saying to us, guys, Jesus is God. He's God. So Jesus is described as the life and the light. We've been singing these phrases in these wonderful songs this morning. And both these words are associated with the creation account. And John again wants us to, he wants to ram home the point to us again and again. Jesus is the creator, God. So in all these verses, Jesus, uh, John has been making the point again and again that Jesus has a divine identity. Now, I expect most of us here have got one of these. It's a passport for you guys at the back. Of course, if you want to travel internationally, you need one of these. It's really important. But often we will, we will use these, not even just when we're traveling, but as, as a formal way of identifying ourselves, don't we? It's, a, it's a, a formal piece of identification. It verifies our identity. So if you turn to the middle, to the middle page, you've got full name, date of birth, place of birth, nationality, and of course a, a recent photo. That's really important to have. And in these verses, it's a bit like John is holding up a massive passport with a picture of Jesus saying, he has divine identity. You know, if you look in here, there are the key details that verify his identity. He is God. He's waving. He's saying, I want you to see. I want you to see in this passage. Jesus is God. He has divine identity. And the second point I want to make, folks, from this text I've called a divine descent. I've got a little dry mouth, so I'm just going to take some water. Okay, so having made it clear to us that Jesus Christ is himself God, John then tells us that Jesus came into the world. And we get that from verses 9 to 11. So let's have a look at it again. Verse 9, the true light that was coming into the world. He was in the world, verse 10. He came to that which was his own, verse 11. But it's not till we get to verse 14 that we appreciate the sheer magnitude of what's happened. It's not till we read this verse that we understand the astonishing nature of Jesus' arrival, the unprecedented manner in which he came. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This was a, a divine descent. Jesus came closer to us than we could ever imagine. He came closer than he ever could. He came to us. He came to us. He became one of us. And I'd just like us to consider that for a moment. You know, you, you may be hearing this for the first time. You may have heard this a thousand times. But let's just consider that again this morning. John's been telling us, Jesus Christ spoke the universe into being. Spoke it with his own words. He spoke the universe into, into existence. And yet, here, he passes through his own creature's uterus. Think about that the all-powerful sustainer of all things, cried as a baby and needed his nappies changed. An eternal, self-sufficient God laid aside his fame and limited himself to time and space, skin and bones, eyes and legs. And if that wasn't crazy enough, the King of Heaven himself 
was born not in a, a royal room of a palace, but in a manger and wrapped in cloths. The promised Messiah was born not into royalty, but into an ordinary working class couple living in an occupied country. Folks, this is a descent of monumental standards. And I, and I hope if you're here today and you're hearing this for the first time, that it blows your mind. And I hope if you're, you've been a Christian for a long, long time, when you're reading this again, it, it should blow our minds, shouldn't it? It should absolutely blow our minds. There could not ever be in history a greater example of such incredible humility. The King of Kings stepped down from his throne in heaven, the throne of thrones. He laid aside his majesty and he lowered himself to become flesh and dwell among his own creation. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians says that although Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. All we need to do is imagine for a moment the queen, in all her splendour, wearing her crown and all her royal jewellery, sitting on the throne with the entire royal family around her and all her royal protection. Imagine her stepping down off her throne, taking off her crown, removing all her royal jewellery, going to her bedroom, her royal bedroom, and getting changed into t-shirt and jeans, into a cardigan and some old shoes. She leaves Buckingham Palace on her own. She doesn't have a royal carriage. She doesn't take a royal limousine. She doesn't even order a taxi. She walks to the bus stop and she gets the 202 to Lee Green. She gets off and she walks to the Cortland estate and she moves into a flat on your road. Could you imagine if something, if something happened like that? Imagine how crazy that would be. I mean, it'd just be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It'd be ridiculous to think that the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, would lower herself to such an extent. Well, stay with me. Keep imagining the scene. Okay, it's Christmas morning. You get a knock on your door. You go downstairs in your dressing gown. You open the door. It's the Queen. She's smiling at you. And you haven't brushed your teeth. And you haven't cleared your, your house. And your carpet's not red. But she says to you, Good morning. I'm coming for Christmas dinner. Now, usually if someone rocks up on Christmas Day on your doorstep and says they're coming for Christmas dinner, it's a little bit annoying that she's the Queen, so you let her off. Okay. And then she says to you, I'm going to cook Christmas dinner. And you're like, you know. And uh, let's just pretend that, that Audi's open on Christmas morning. She runs down to Audi. She gets the turkey. She gets everything. And then she comes back home and she cooks it all for you, your friends and your family. And she waits on you. She serves you. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? The queen basically becoming an ordinary human being, quite literally living among you and serving you freely. Well, of course, no illustration can, can come close to doing justice to the mind-blowing, awesome story of the incarnation. But I, I hope with that, it at least gives us a tiny glimpse of what Jesus did when he gave up his eternal throne in heaven and came to earth as a man and lived among us to serve us. Now, it's very important for me to say here that when the Bible says that Jesus took on human flesh, it it never says at any point that he stopped being God. And that's really important because sometimes over the years, Christians have got that wrong. That's been a fundamental point of false teaching. Jesus was, was 
fully man, but he was always fully God. He never, never stopped being divine. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. Actually, it means that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Okay, and that's really difficult to get our brains around, isn't it? And uh, we struggle with our limited brain capacity to understand how God can operate in that way. And to be honest, that's entirely appropriate because how can our brains really understand the one who made us fully? And if we're saying that Jesus is God, then actually by virtue of Jesus being God, well then surely he can do anything. So we can accept this mysterious reality. Um, and Jesus, as a result, is often referred to as the God-man. Fully God and fully man. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he give up everything and come to earth in the form of a man and live among us? Well, if we look at a few verses on from the passage that, we, that I read out this morning, in verse 18, we read these words. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, that's verse 18. In the Old Testament, God communicated through people. Often he'd speak through the prophets, and they had a very specific message that they wanted to communicate to his people, the people of Israel. But no one ever actually saw God, not in a full and complete way. And in coming to earth in in physical form, with his divine identity, Jesus had the opportunity to reveal God to people in a completely radical and new way. In Jesus, people could literally see God, literally see him and touch him. Jesus' mission didn't stop there, though. There was a purpose to him revealing God personally. And this purpose was to bring his light to the darkness of mankind. Brett was sharing that earlier, wasn't he, when he was praying that God would shine his light into the darkness of mankind. And Jesus did that to save us from our sin and to bring us to God, you know, to, to bridge the gap of this separation that, that Malcolm was talking about last week. And in verse 9, it says it, the true light that gives light to everyone, the true light, was coming into the world. Well, so far, John has shown us Jesus' identity as being divine. And he's shown us Jesus' mission through his, what I'd call, divine descent and incarnation. And then he also shows us humanity's response to Jesus and his mission. And this is my final point, which I've called a divided response. A divided response. Now, if you read through the Gospel accounts, you will notice that right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, People, people responded to Jesus in different ways. He divided opinion. And although he was the creator and saviour of the world and God in the flesh, many people didn't recognise him. Sad. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. Think back to my illustration about the Queen. It would be like the Queen being in the middle of Lee Green, you know, proclaiming good news to people teaching people, caring for them, loving them, getting alongside them, and doing these amazing things. But with people actually not recognising that she is the queen, their queen, our queen, the royal ruling monarch. That's what it would be a little bit like. And sadly today, you know, just like when Jesus physically walked the earth, many people don't recognise him as their creator, as their saviour. Many people don't take the time to, to read about him in the Bible to listen to him, proclaimed through the word. They don't take the time to look at him, to investigate him, to check him out, to see that he is who he says he is. So many people don't know him. And that should burden us. 
let me ask you this morning, folks, do you know him? Do you recognize him? When you look at Jesus, do you see the one who made the world? Do you see the one who made you? And who gives you every breath that you're breathing, even right now? Do you see your saviour? Do you see the one who gave up his royalty, his throne in heaven, and descended the ultimate distance, who lowered himself unimaginably and came to earth as a man to bring you and me to God? Do you see him? Do you recognise him? Very early on in Jesus' ministry, many of the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders at the time, the teachers at the time, they rejected him. They rejected him. They, they wouldn't believe that Jesus was their God-sent saviour. And they refused to receive him. In fact, from an early point in Jesus' ministry, if you read through some of the Gospels, they actually start plotting to kill him very early on. In John 11, John tells us that he came to his own. His own. But his own did not receive him. Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He was the one that hundred, for hundreds of years there have been prophecies about Jesus coming. His arrival had been predicted and he would be the one who would come and save the Jewish people, his own people. The Jews were Jesus' own people and yet tragically they didn't receive him. And again, like 2,000 years ago, sadly today, many Jews still reject Jesus. They don't accept Jesus as their own Messiah. They don't receive him. And it's not just Jews that don't receive Jesus. People from all sorts of faith backgrounds and religions and, and, and many people that have spent their life in church. I've got lots of friends like that. Grew up in church. Don't receive him. They either dislike him or in some cases hate him or they're just not really that bothered by him. They're just indifferent to him. Sounds like a nice guy but just he has no place in my life. Well, I wonder where you are with Jesus today. I wonder if you've rejected him or if you've received him. Well, if this passage in John ended at verse 11, I guess it would be a pretty sad thing to read. But thankfully, that's not the case. And this little word, yet, at the beginning of verse 12, carries such a sense of hope, a sense that this is not the end of the story. Let's read on. It says in verse 12, Yet, to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So folks, the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for the non-Jews. Sometimes the Bible refers to them as Gentiles. And I'm imagining probably most of us in here, that's what it refers to. I'm not Jewish. But Jesus came for me. He came for you. And that's the wonderful news of the gospel. He came for all people who would receive him. All people. And of course, millions of people do receive Jesus today. They received him then. Some people and and, and lots of people follow Jesus today, don't we? I imagine most of us here do. And if you notice from the text, it says that receiving Jesus goes hand in hand with believing in his name. Do you see that there? And that's really important. And believing in his name really refers to trusting in Jesus and in his finished work at the cross in dying for our sin in our place. And receiving Jesus really means welcoming him. It means submitting to him in a personal relationship as Lord, as the 
the boss of our lives. And in verse 12 and 13, are just fantastic verses, aren't they? They tell us that those that receive Jesus become children of God, born of God. Now, of course, we know that being born naturally makes us physically alive and we're born into a human family. But being born of God is something altogether different. It makes us spiritually alive to God and it puts us in God's family. Sometimes I hear people saying, you know, an expression, they say, well, we're all children of God. You know, we're, we're all children of God, etc., etc., etc. Actually, that's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. God created all of us. That's true. But actually, if we want to be children of God, it's only through receiving Jesus and being reborn of the Holy Spirit that we become children of God. Well, if you're a Christian here today, if you're trusting in Jesus, and if you've received him as your Lord, then I hope you know that you are a child of God. That is the highest privilege. You, 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 are, you have royal status. You're, you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. You're a child of the ultimate true king. I hope you realise that. Maybe it's never dawned on you in that sense. That is, that is who you are if you have believed in his name, if you've received him. That's what John's telling us today. I, I, I pray that you grasp that today, if you're a Christian here today. Well, folks, as, as we close, let me say this. John doesn't want us to miss who Jesus is. He, he doesn't want us to miss that. You know, John and the other disciples, they didn't understand straight away when they met with Jesus, even though they walked with him for, for quite a while. But then, then they got it. It became clear. They saw his glory. That's what John says in the passage, isn't it? We've seen his glory. John wants us to see Jesus for who he really is. He wants us to see, to get it and to realise that Jesus is bigger than we've ever imagined. He's, he's bigger than you've ever imagined. He's bigger than I've ever imagined. He's huge. Jesus is huge. It's like John is shouting that at us this morning. He is huge. He's eternally existent. Eternally existent. He's a creator of all things. He's the source of life. He's the word. He is the light. He's the one and only son of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. He's full of grace and truth. He's fully God. And yet for our sakes, became fully man. In his unfathomable love for us, he humbled himself, descended to us in the most incredible way. And he did it because he loves us. He loves us more than we understand. More than we get. He wanted to reveal God to us and offer us new life and eternal joy. Eternal joy with him. Jesus came closer to us than we could ever imagine. He came to bring us to God. What's the appropriate response to Jesus today? Isn't it just to, to gaze at him, to, to marvel at him, to be in awe of him? He is huge. To treasure him, to enjoy him, to worship him with our lives, to bow before him, give him everything. He deserves it. He's glorious. Well, in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to respond. Jesus in worship. We're going to sing a great song that reminds us of 
another great song, I should say, that reminds us of the truth that we've been singing today and the hope that we have in Christ. And then we're going to have an opportunity to respond to God by breaking bread together. We're going to share the bread and the juice and we're going to remind each other as a covenant community, brothers and sisters who follow Jesus, exactly again who, who he is and what he's done for us. And of course the great symbolism that carries uh, in, in breaking bread, in, in, in sharing the Lord's Supper. And it's really important that we do that together and we can celebrate that this morning. So we're gonna, the band are going to come up and let me just pray for us as the band come up as we finish today. Lord Jesus, you, you blow our mind, Lord. You blow our minds. We are speechless. At times I know I am when I think of all that you are and all that you've done. We are in awe of you this morning. We thank you, Father, that you have given your your son to us, that he has descended in such an unimaginable way to come to us, to be one of us, to walk with us and to bring us to you. Lord, we worship you, we bow our knee this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more like him. I pray for anyone here this morning that has yet to believe in Jesus, yet to receive him, yet to understand who he is, yet to recognize him in all his glory. Lord, that you would show him to them. Even now, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we stand together, we're going to sing in Christ alone. through the fiercest cry. 